been far from a classic but Aberdeen have done exactly everything right from this beautifully inside Watson oh the bar Scanlon yes what a marvellous goal to finish this match they have won Alec Ferguson is on now in the penalty area there he's in Aberdeen have definitely won the championship can you blame the man for going out of his mind temporarily Hello and welcome to the latest Here We Go podcast. This week's show is another in our series of memorable season reviews. But, in this instance, because we're coming up to a pretty significant anniversary, we've pushed the boat out with a guest list. It's now 40 years since the league title triumph of 1980. Aberdeen's first such title since 1955, and the first of what would be a golden era under, well, it was plain old Alex Ferguson back then. To mark that, we're delighted to welcome onto the show a man who was an important part of the squad that season and later returned to Petaudry as assistant manager under Fergie. It's Willie Gardner. How are you doing, Willie? I'm good, Richard. Thank you. Absolute pleasure to have you on, as it is to have Michael Grant with us. Uh, he's quite literally written the book on this era, The Fabulous Fergie Rises, available all good bookshops. Well, actually, not exactly that right now. Um, how are you anyway, Michael? I'm good, Richard. Thank you. I would encourage all uh, listeners to panic buy and stockpile copies of Fergie Rises during the lockdown. <laughs> Not the management. Oh, that too. Yeah. <laughs> then, to give us a view from the terraces, is someone else who's contributed important work to the Don's bibliography when he wrote Numbers on the Front, the story of the Don's summer 1967 transformation into the Washington Whips. Delighted to have David Innes on the show. Hello, and thanks for joining us, David. Hi, Richard. How are you? Very well. So set the scene, David, uh, in terms of um, your Dawn supporting history up to 1980. Had it been a had it been a slow burning love affair, or were you were you properly into the Dawns at that point? Oh, oh no! Um, actually, attended my first match on the third of January 1966, where we were two 0 up against St Johnston at half time and got beat three two. That's the sort of misery we like on this show. Exactly. If you can survive that sort of thing, you know uh, the longevity is not going to be in question. So by the time 1980 came around and we'd won that league, you'll come on to that. Uh, absolutely, still the best day of my life as a Dons fan. Well, yeah, we will absolutely come to that that day at Easter Road and indeed the celebrations that followed it. But let's take us back to the summer of 1979. Now, Alex Ferguson's second season in charge at Petardry is the way to begin. And Michael, I wouldn't exactly say when knives were being sharpened, but his first full season, it did seem to represent a step back from Billy McNeil's year in charge. And that's probably exacerbated by the fact that McNeil went then to Celtic and won the league there. He really did still have it all approved to a northeast public, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And um, the, f- the first season under Fergie was a pretty turbulent one for him personally because he um, he found... As Willie will probably uh, expand on, he did find a little pockets of resistance within the squad because there was a lot of Billy McNeil men in, in that squad. Understandably, he'd signed some of them and he'd also developed and improved um, a lot of them too. So they were they were what you might call Billy McNeil loyalists, you know. And of course, 
you know, some of them didn't take immediately to Fergie's style. There were some uh, early teething problems and confrontations and, and uh, challenges to Fergie's authority, I guess. Um, so there was that going on. There was also, you know, he got into this uh, industrial tribunal against St Mirren who had sacked him, which was obviously pretty fortuitous for Aberdeen because it meant that he ended up at Petodi within about 24 hours. And he also lost his dad at the end of, um, you know, at the end of December or roughly into December um, on that first season. And uh, he also lost the League Cup final. In uh, in seventy nine to to Rangers, which was um, quite a, a, a messy and unsatisfying combination of that tournament with the Dugrug v uh, Derek Johnston clash at Hamden. So yeah, I mean the first season was difficult, but there was enough there to to buy into, I think, and certainly in terms of most of the players were aware that they were with a force of nature who, if they buckled up to him, might uh, take them somewhere. Now, there hadn't been much coming and going in that first season, Willie, in fairness. In terms of player movements, um, a couple of the, the fringe players had, had moved on. Guys like Ian Fleming had moved on to Sheffield Wednesday, I think it was. And uh, before that second season, just one incomer to the squad, um, after what Michael described as a turbulent first season, was there a feeling that you know, you were getting down to business now with, with a manager that you'd kind of understood a little bit about how he ticked and he had understood a little bit about how the squad uh, worked. You go back a little bit just to that first season he was there. Uh, and I agree with Michael on everything he says there. And, and just little bits about, you know, he's always trying to compare some of the, the, the players with some living players. Um, you know, at that time, players thought he was being disrespectful. Once you got to know him, I think it was just a challenge. It was seeing how you reacted to things uh, more than actually uh, putting any pressure on you to be, you know, to go and try and prove yourself. And that was the way the manager worked. You know, once you got into that thinking of, you know, he would set you challenges, uh, whether it was critical of you or whether it was praiseworthy of you. Um, it would set these challenges that you would see how you reacted to these challenges that you put down. You know, that bore out in the press, the stuff that you used to speak about in the press, and also it bore out in the dressing room as well, because you started then to realise that his knowledge was unbelievable, his, his um, leadership at times, you would have questioned it then, but once again you got used to him, you understood exactly where he was coming from, so he always had this great thing, he would deal with a monster, right, when I went back to work with him, he would deal with a monster, he would deal with a monster, if it was him, he would deal with anything. <laughs> and was that there right from the get-go, Willie? Was that right there from the minute he walked in the door? Was he this fully formed, well, monster, as you say, the minute he walked in the door at Petodre? I, I, I would have thought that his style right through his management career would have been a, a, a tad uh, autocratic. Um, <laughs> but I feel that... Uh, I feel that he, um, he tried to lay down the law pretty early to a bunch of experienced players who, if you, you remember the season before when, when Big Billy was here, was at Aberdeen, uh, we had a great season up until the last game of the season. Uh, you know, we should have won the league. We should have won the Scottish Cup. Um, I mean, I think they're in a Scottish Cup final against Rangers and Aberdeen, I think, were favourites the way we were playing and we didn't play well. So the nucleus of that side was there uh, and you know, it was a better side than the manager, than Sir Alec was managing at the time, St Mirren. He had better quality players, there's no doubt about that. 
Um, and he came in and he was a bit, I, I think he was a bit heavy handed to start with. But again, I'll go back to two minutes ago. You know, there's a reason why he's done that. Now, whether that was intentional or whether it was not, no one will know. He would probably say it was intentional to find out what we were like as a group and as individuals as well. So, you know, he would, he would get the best out of every individual that he possibly could. And if the individual then was falling below his standards, then you were away. And I think he continued that right through his whole career. Obviously, it would be Europe that would later form... The arena for uh, some of Ferguson's greatest triumphs at Bataudry, but that season in the UEFA Cup, a pretty tough draw, David, in fairness. Always tough when you come up against the German sides. I think that's a point Ferguson made later in his career that, you know, the dressing room kind of almost felt as if that was it as soon as you draw a German team. And we drew Eintracht Frankfurt out of the gates in the first round of the UEFA Cup round that year. Uh, did you, uh, do you remember anything about the home game? Yeah, I remember the, the the guy with the exotic name Chan Bom Kun. The was a Korean player. Mm-hmm. They had striker. My God, he was fast. Uh, we struggled to handle him, and I think he he scored their goal, which was the away goal that knocked us out. What I remember is that they were a very very organised team. Typical efficiency, a bit of flair about them in in in, in Chan Bom Kun, uh, and I think we probably had the beating of them at home. The away leg, I think we lost one nil. Is that correct? And, uh, uh, without two one, I, I think it was just experience, you know. And I think as time went on, uh, Fergie, who, who they always said had a great eye for other teams' weaknesses and, and how to play against them, set out his team uh, to, to to play to their strengths and exploit their weaknesses. I think that's the experience he got, in, you know, against Liverpool, Ipswich, and so on in, in succeeding seasons. And I didn't think he had that right then. And I think. Um, had we had a, a couple of easier games before we'd um, been drawn against someone of that calibre, uh, we might have gone a bit further. Yeah, by no means disgrace, Michael, but uh, disappointing, obviously, to go out so early in Europe. And uh, again, as, a, as David rightly points out, a manager who learned something, I think, from every defeat. This one's not mentioned when we look back now and we talk about the Liverpool game or going out to Hamburg, but this would have been an important staging post. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Eintracht Frankfurt went on to win the tournament that season, if I, I, I believe, you know. And, and actually, it was funny that um, Aberdeen were, were, were tended to tended to go out of Europe in that little period to teams that really went far in the tournament. You know, they, they were they were losing to teams that, that proved themselves to be to be something special in Europe. Um, you know, in, in hindsight, I take your point exactly that um, Liverpool was seen as a great. Uh, a great learning curve for Aberdeen. I mean, the Hamburg uh, uh, result a couple of seasons later was as well. The Eintracht Frankfurt game, I suppose, you might look back at it and think that it didn't really do the team too much harm in the long run because it uh, it meant that they weren't uh, distracted by Europe. Now, that sounds a flippant thing to say these days, but, I mean, the Eintracht defeat was in October. So, I mean, you know, you didn't have to play many rounds in those days to be quite deep into the, deep into the fixture calendar, you know, so... Maybe it didn't do Aberdeen any favours, any harm to go out of Europe and not have that to, to concern themselves with, because really until until the kind of um, late kind of push in the second half of the season, it wasn't really looking like Aberdeen were going to sustain a league challenge, you know, and um, uh, it, we, we were expecting Celtic to um, to be quite comfortable. 
one one thing I would just um, just to very quickly go back on on onto on the previous season, Richard. Aberdeen beat the old firm six times that season in the course of the League Cups and the and the league, and I mean I think that demonstrated the um, the quality that Fergie was inheriting. You know, I mean, for all that he obviously took the lads to a to a new level, they they were they were within touching distance before he came in, and and they just needed that kind of collective belief and um, steeliness and. Arrogance. I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit more in, in, uh, as the episode goes on. But you know that was that was what he added to a squad and a nucleus of of real talent that was there, um, and he did that over the course of the first couple of seasons. Well, if I can come back a couple of things there, Willie. Firstly, um, I, I know you didn't actually play in the uh, away game in Frankfurt, but you certainly played against them at home. Um, do you have any recollection of playing against Jabum Kuhn? good friend of mine, Stuart Kennedy, I'm sure you all know. Stuart, I, I met Stuart um, four, three or four months ago. I knew him quite a lot. We were chatting about things and um, we were talking about Chabong. But Stuart would say that nobody ever got the better of him. Right? And I'm pretty sure some of you have had discussions with Stuart. <laughs> and and he was quite adamant that no one got the better of him. Uh, and I happened to mention Chabong. True story, honestly. And he says... He never got a bear of me that night. Because <laughs> I put him inside to you guys. He <laughs> says, so you didn't deal well. I dealt well. I done my job. <laughs> didn't you go past me down the line? So I done my job. Yeah. But getting, the, getting aside, yeah, the side, the, the guy was an absolute flyer. But I, I think he was a, a, a professional sprinter. Pretty sure he was a professional sprinter. And he's probably one of the few guys I've seen that's been faster than sure. Again, Stuart would just say he never went down the line. <laughs> but, um, but thinking back, but going back to the whole experience of, because I was in Eintracht, I didn't play. I think you came off the bench, Willie. Really. I was doing you a disservice. Yeah. yeah. You know, that bit that you're all talking about where this is a good, looks like a good learning curve. Sir Alex Face, didn't he say that when you were talking to him about that game? You know? Um, he thought with the result that we got at home and the quality they had in the squad, we could cross there and beat them. There was absolutely no doubt about that. They, 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 we felt ourselves that we'd go and beat them as well. But you then go into that whole mindset of playing against a German team in Europe. And I know Aberdeen had fantastic success later on against the German side. But um, at that point, they were just a wee bit more, I think, just a wee bit more nous. They were just a wee bit more physically stronger than us as well. And it was a disappointment, a real disappointment to go out so early in the tournament. The other point Michael raised about, well, fixture congestion, because one of the reasons there would be congestion, especially in the first half of the season, was the, the format of the League Cup in particular. Two legs at every stage, all played before uh, before Christmas. So I think there was something like 13 games in a League Cup or something like that. Third round, we face Rangers, we beat them home and away. Quarterfinals, play Celtic, beat them home and away. Ultimately, though, as we'll talk about, we don't quite go over the line. Backing up what had happened the previous season, we were able to beat Rangers and Celtic, it seemed, in these tournaments, but we weren't quite making that final step. A couple of particular memories about uh, about those uh, games, Willie. Uh, firstly, the, the Celtic in the quarterfinal. The home game, uh, Steve Archibald hat-trick that night. The story, obviously, afterwards, which has gone down a Pitodri legend... Steve Archibald taking the ball away, um, being encouraged by the team, I think, to take the ball away after scoring the hat-trick. 
Fergie getting on to him the day after and saying, where's the ball? And then Steve Archibald walking in on Friday and slamming the ball uh, into Fergie's office um, on the Friday morning. I mean, those two were both pretty headstrong characters, to, to say the least, I think. Was uh, Archibald one of the guys who would clash with the manager, or was he smarter than that to not do that publicly? Steve was a right good player, a really good player, uh, and obviously proved that with the clubs he went, especially Barcelona, hero worship that his as well. Uh, and Stevie was a, a, a one of the quieter guys, to be honest, in terms of in the dressing room. Um, wasn't as flamboyant and as, as full of fun as everybody else. Got on with his job. I think Stevie, to be fair, when Big Billy signed him, Stevie was a car mechanic, if I'm right. <laughs> and... Um, I think he's seen that as what a fantastic opportunity to go to a, what he saw was a big club at that time and go and prove himself. So Stevie was a sort of um, tell him what to do, a great idea what he wanted to do himself, and he went and done it. And the, the incident with the ball, was, as he said, is legendary um, because it's not actually fair in his office. It's just that wee room next to the dressing room. Now that, that wee room is only eight feet square. 10 feet square maximum. I'm sure he's all been in it. Teddy had the task to go and ask for the ball back. And Stevie just walked, opened the door and just battered him with a bullet ricochet and it around the walls. But, you know, later on again, when I started working with, with, with Alec, he tells that story and he says, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. He says, that passion that he showed, you know, he thought he was getting robbed of something that he deserved. And I think he eventually got the ball. Richard, I was going to say though, it also showed a, a, per, a Fergie personality trait or a managerial uh, uh, quality that he would put up with that from Archibald because he knew the value of the of the player. You know, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure Willie would agree that there would be plenty of guys who had they done that, you know, their their backsides wouldn't have touched the touched the, the floor again on the, before they were <laughs> being escorted out the door, you know what I mean? But like he did later with Cantona at United, he, he obviously thought straight away, I'll immediately interpret this as, this is great. You know, this is this is what I want from players, uh, that kind of up yours quality that Archibald had. Um, but he was too good to lose, wasn't he? There's a, there's a great story where, where I said right at the outset, where um, he, would, he would test players to see how they reacted to certain things. And we played at Ibrox I think it might have been the season before. We played at Ibrox and we got beat. So maybe it wasn't the season before then. I think it was, I think it was Fergie's first season. We might have been doing the Ibrox and we got beat. And a lot of the boys were staying down for the weekend. And he was raging, absolutely raging. And he ordered all the players back on the bus to go back to Aberdeen. And Mark McGee was going to a wedding at the, in, down in Glasgow. And his wife had to follow the bus in a car all the way back to Aberdeen to pick him up to take him back down the road again. Now, a lot of players thinking violence where they just went stuff that I can't play for him. But then this mentality of I'll show you and and you know, that's that's how that's part of the way that the manager operated. It was like I'll test you to the limit to see how much you're gonna take from me. 
and then they'll see how you react to it. I think it's interesting on Archibald the idea that because he was an not like not an exception was made, but because it was clear his importance to the side, that incident gets moulded into. Fergie sees it as a positive I think that's an interesting thing to say but I've got to say doing a bit of reading ahead of this looking back at his uh, the autobiography that he put out with his time at Aberdeen he talks about two players who left who he would have back in a second and they are Gordon Strachan and Steve Archibald so uh, obviously even by that point which I think is 86 that he writes that book he is still you know, it's, he's not taking that opportunity to settle scores, which he, I think, does in some subsequent autobiographies. Second leg of that game, I, I think it's significant for another reason, for another striker, David. It's uh, mm. Joe Harper, obviously, who he suffers, um, I think it was ligament damage. Um, I think in the notes here I put leg break, but I think it was ligament damage, which actually ended up keeping him out. Well, it kept him out for 18 yeah. months, but really, it was the end of his career. Oh. An Alan Snedden tackle, as I remember. I was down at the game. Um, we'd beaten him 3-2. And it was a Saturday. Played the League Cup, the quarter-final second leg on a Saturday. That actually gave McGee his chance. Because McGee, I think he'd been signed just before the previous League Cup final. Um, but March that year. Maybe slightly earlier. And he'd never really made his mark. It was Archibald Jarvie, Archibald Harper that were kind of selected as the strikers. He came on as a sub and scored the only goal just after half-time. But it was really sad to see Joe being carried off. And um, if we go on and talk about the end of the season, we, we, we actually met him at the end of the season. And he was very wary of, of being among the rest, seemed to be among the rest of the squad, among the fans, thinking, I've not played my full part here after we, we'd won it. You know, what we've heard all the stories about him and Ferguson not getting on. I did actually speak to Joe. It was, that year was also his testimonial year. And uh, I spoke to him at his cheese and wine party. And he was making murmurings of it. He felt he was going to lose his place to McGee because that was the guy that Ferguson had signed, i.e. a Ferguson player. He and Harper didn't always see eye to eye. So it was a shame to see Joe's career all but finish that way. Although he did come back and play for Keith, which is very important to me. But yeah, that that, that was sad. But that, that actually gave McGee his chance and he turned out to be a very, very important player throughout the rest of the season. Uh, he really bloomed uh, once he was given given the chance. Uh, it's just unfortunate it was Joe's injury that, that allowed that. Was there any cheese at that cheese and wine party? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not a cheese man, Michael. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have thought Joe was either, to be honest. No, no, there was plenty, pl- plenty of the other, as they say. Yes, uh, with a with a Keith superfan and an ex Keith manager on the show, we'll try and avoid this show just becoming uh, dominated by discussions <laughs> about uh, the Highland League side. Um, again, doing a, reading a light in the north. The, there's an interesting line in there when Ferguson looks back at this season, Michael, when he asks, "Would the side still have won the title if Joe Harper had been fit to play for the rest of the season?" And he he answers that question by saying, "No, he doesn't think so." Aye, I mean it's it's a really interesting issue that because as as Dave alluded to there, you know there was there was tension, shall we put it that way, between Joe and Fergie, and it became a little bit bitter later on, and they both had a pop at each other in the relative in the respective autobiographies. So, you know, on the outside of it, we're tempted to think, well, maybe it was kind of convenient that um, that Joe was kind of removed from the equation and. Um, and that Fergie could concentrate on 
you know, Harper and McGee or, and Javi was around too. But um, again, the, the the pragmatist in Fergie would have would have recognised that Joe would still have been weighing in with goals and and uh, and that that is always going to have a value in a tight title race. As, as, and it was a tight title race, you know. So that you know, I think that's Fergie. Uh, not being not being small minded there in terms of his relationship with Harper and saying well the the, the guy could still have done a job for us and uh, would still have been useful. Being on the uh, League Cup um, after the Celtic games, in fact the week after the second leg of the Celtic game, um, it's the semi final and uh, the semi finals at that point are as they are now at Hamden. Um, which was a pretty bad decision when you've got Aberdeen and Morton with a, a week's notice because there was about 8,000 people inside uh, Hamden that day to watch us eke out a 2-1 win. Now, Morton were a good side back then. I think they were actually top of the table when that game was played. What They were really Aberdeen's bogey team. Uh, have you, with the benefit of hindsight, been able to understand why? I, I feel that Morton were a very underrated side. Uh, the, if you go through the players, every player that they had in their side, they had some really top top players, um, and the you know they were probably the modern the the the, 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 the lesser day Livingston as they are now, such a difficult difficult team to play against. With a couple of stars, including Big Andy, um, and Andy Ritchie was Big Bobby would, would actually say that he couldn't sleep the night before he played against Morton. <laughs> because they didn't know what Andy Ritchie was going to do, and we were into that that semi final, and you know, and it was the one that we had to go and graft and graft and graft to win the game because Morton were a good side. So the, the I think the achievement at the club was fantastic getting to the final because you were playing against Andy Ritchie, I would say, was a genius, you know, and I think everyone has have all seen him playing. We were up for the game because we knew you're right. We didn't have a great record against them. But we got the job done. And then the following week, we're back at Hamden, Dundee United, in the League Cup final. And yeah. um, this game takes place on a miserable wet day at Hamden. The pitch back then, bit of a glue pot that day, Willie. And uh, I guess to this day, you would say that's the reason that you didn't score a Cup final winner that day. Yeah, I didn't score a lot of goals. I'm sure you've got that in your record as well. <laughs> as well. But I've got it written down as well. By the way, I'd like to see I scored against Meadowbank in the first round of that cup. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was really late on in the game. We had a corner and I won a header and it, it just got stuck in the mud. I headed it down and it got stuck in the mud. I think I beat Hamish in the air and, and David Neary cleared it. And it, was, it, was, it just stopped on the line. I should also point out, which I'm surprised you didn't, you also scored at Ibrox on that League Cup run as well. So... Uh... <laughs> You did, yeah. For, for Aberdeen. <laughs> <laughs> that first game, David. Aberdeen, the better side in the day. Ferguson again. I mean, we know he likes to rewrite history for his own ends, but after the game, he says he knew that uh, Jim McLean had uh, escaped the bullet and would change things up for the second game. And he kind of felt, almost in retrospect, that that was the chance gone that day. I think that's fair enough. I actually, the game itself kind of escaped me. All these nil-nil games against Dundee United kind of do. You know, they all kind of merge into one another. I obviously remember Willie uh, coming very, very close. I, I think you're right. I think what Fergie did for once is uh, didn't change things when he might have done. And uh, McLean did for the replay at Dens Park on the, on the Wednesday. And, um, you know, we, we, we were on the end of a bit of a doing uh, which still hurts. The two teams were so 
nip and tuck at the time. It was difficult. And what you would find, and if you, I mean, if you look at the history beyond and before that season, if it wasn't a tight 1-1 or 0-0 draw, one team tended to win 3-0 or, or, or 4-1 or something. So it was one of these kind of testing, weary types of games. Nobody wanted to lose anything, giving away. As soon as you'd given something away and you had to fight back, that left the gaps for the other team to exploit. And that was not only um, in the, the replay that um, the following Wednesday night, but throughout that, that sort of period, league games, cup games, uh, and so on, it was either really tight or one side had quite a handsome victory. On the Saturday it was 0-0, and on the Wednesday night it wasn't. Yeah, Michael, the, the Wednesday night to Dens Park, just that a, a miserable night for anybody of an, uh, an Aberdeen association. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was uh, a horrible night, a horrible pitch, a horrible performance, a horrible result. You know, Aberdeen dominated in terms of the, the size of the support. They took a, a huge following down, but they just never, they never delivered for them. Bitterly, bitterly disappointing. Dundee United, of course, had never won anything up until that to in that period in their history that was their first major honour you look at their side I mean that's pretty much the guts of the team that won the league in 83 you know so you were up against a, a very strong Dundee United team but I mean you know there were no, no complaints no arguments well beaten on the night Pettigrew and Sturrocks Pettigrew scored twice Sturrock got the other one I think and um, no no complaints but it was it was a pretty kind of bad tempered night bad tempered crowd uh, just just one to forget one to write off well, the other thing about it is that, um, you know, we'd knocked out all the big guys on the way to the final. We'd knocked yeah. out Rangers, Celtic, Morton, who were, a, say, a bogey team and well up the league with us. Dundee United were only played one uh, Premier League team, Premier Division team in the whole tournament, and that was us in the final. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of, we felt we'd done all the heavy lifting and then come along and snatched it from, deservedly, uh, but snatched it from under our noses, you know. So what you're saying there is, David, it's another trophy that Dun United won by default, basically. Like like their league trophy in 83. That's like all the others have got. All the others? How many? <laughs> <laughs> have you got seven fingers there, Michael? No, but they've done a bit better than the Scottish Cup than we have recently. So. Who hasn't? Rel- relative, relatively recently. Well, yeah, around that time, that defeat just seemed to feed into a sort of feeling amongst the, our Aberdeen, the, the, our own supporters really in some respects that we were a bridesmaid team. We just, we were getting close, we were in amongst the big boys but we couldn't do it when it mattered. Obviously what we now know about the characters in that dressing room, it wasn't the case but it, it must have rankled at the time that, I mean you came back to Petaudry and I'm sure you didn't see it but there was graffiti on Petaudry Street, you did see it did you? Yeah, well, have you seen it? He was, was angry in two counts. Angry that, that someone would do that, but also angry at the fact that he, he knew that they would let, would let the fans down again. Uh, and he says, that'll not happen again. And they really had to go to the players. Um, he says, there's something written on the wall there. And I don't know how quickly they got rid of that graffiti, but um, it just says, you've let us down again. That, that was a... A mental thing for him that just said, you know, this isn't going to happen to us again. We're going to be, that's when I, I think he started all that drum beating about, you're going to go to places and win games. We can prove it, we can go to Ibrox and prove it, we can go to Celtic Park and win games. And it's not just about beating them, it's about beating other teams as well. So it was, I think it was quite a bit of a, a turning point, you know, um, in terms of how hurt he was. 
That bit, that bit of graffiti really, Dave, Dave will back us, back me up on this, but I mean that did tap into a kind of an attitude that a lot of the supporters did have at that point. Now whether that was unfair on the teams and the managers over those years, uh, you know, we can debate that. But um, certainly losing the 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 seventy eight Scottish Cup final, losing again to Rangers in the League Cup final. In Fergie's first season, and then, and then that Dundee United replay. So it, 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 there was no question about it. That was a an attitude that the supporters had. That you know, the, the, the team lets us down when it goes down to Glasgow, and um, especially when it's clearly so strong and capable, but not, but, but not, not, not winning trophies. You know, from a supporter's perspective, I don't think we we got it within the dressing room. It's what was what was the supporters' expectations at that time? You know, because we won the league cup. We, you know, we then got beaten a couple of finals, as you, as you, as you rightly said. Uh, Aberdeen at that point were still, I thought, classed as a provincial club. Ourselves and Dundee United were provincial clubs. We are the big two down the road. We're, we're just winning everything in front of them. We could prove that we could beat them, but maybe not on the, the occasion that was the most important one. But did, did, did the fans genuinely think that, that there was a, that we just couldn't deal with situation, certain situations? I think I think there was a barrier we had to jump, you know, and I think you know the ultimate outcome of that season was was that was us up with the big boys then, you know they talk about strong mental mental attitude, and I think it was that, but I think that's what Ferguson, you know, Willie, you'll know better than I will, obviously having been been uh, in the dressing room, but he seemed to instill that mentality. We've read all the the the, the, the quotes about him um, being angry when. The team drew at Ibrox and were celebrating as though they'd won. And he says, that's not good enough. But I think that he brought that mental steel, that belief that Michael talked about earlier on, into the club that allowed them to make that hurdle, overtake that hurdle at the end of that season, winning the league. You know, not a cup where you can, a bit of luck, you know, you can draw small teams and then meet a premiership club in the final. Um, no names mentioned. But over the you know 36 games of a season, I think it was then, um, to, to do that, that takes mental toughness and I, I was actually going to mention the after the League Cup final, we played St Mirren on the Saturday and we struggled we beat them 2-0 but it was a real struggle St Mirren a very good side but you could see that your players were nervous, they wanted rid of the ball um, there was no real cohesion I think we scored two quick goals in the second half um, and there was a sort of jittery period after that, we drew some games, we beat Rangers at Pittori which is always good it wasn't until um, around about end of February, something like that, we really began to hit our stride. And once we hit that run, the belief kind of multiplied. And the mental strength we, we talked about, I think that's where it really came into its own. I think it's interesting what you say about fan expectation, Willie, because I think it goes beyond that. I think it was maybe uh, a preconception around within the game itself that there's that episode, obviously after you've moved on, but uh, Michael, I think, will be able to relate the tale of... Um, I think we were beating Rangers 4-0 in the game before the 1982 Scottish Cup final and um, I think it was maybe Gordon Smith turns to Alex McLeish and says yeah but you'll not do it when it matters because the belief was Aberdeen wouldn't turn up at Hamden like they hadn't turned up in finals prior to that point and this is after winning the league so um, I think it was perhaps prevalent not just within the Aberdeen support but perhaps that, that feeling was within the game as a whole the, that message that Big Alec got for Gordon Smith, though, wasn't he long getting passed around about the dressing room? <laughs> I'm sure not. I am sure not. You know, with Sir Alec, 
he did things and you wonder, has he thought that through to get a reaction or has he just done it off the spur? You know, and, it, and you'll, you'll never know. Some of the things that he would do to, to get players to, to play, you know, where you're thinking, wow, did he need to say that? Is this some of the things that he would, he would, he would verbally slaughter people? You know, eyeball to eyeball. Uh, and you're thinking, did he need to do that to get a reaction or did he just do it because that's what he does? And, and I really, at times, I, I sometimes didn't know the answer whether, whether it was all psychology or whether it was just being a lunatic for 10 seconds. I mean, a, a comment like that from Gordon Smith is meat and drink to the whole Fergie psychology, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolute meat and drink, because he goes, you know, <laughs> they talk about, you know, taking newspaper articles and pinning them on the dressing room wall. I mean, that you know, that's, do, that's doing your work for you. That's right in your team talk, isn't it? Big Alec then got a, 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 a music that he used to play before they went to Everground, and it was that, who sings that you have been that we're on the road to nowhere. <laughs> Talking heads. Talking heads, right? That that tune got boomed out when we were about a mile away from a, a, an opposing ground, away from home. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> thump, the players are thumping the windies as they're going past the supporters and everything. So you can imagine that, you know, that was the players decided to do that, you know, because they got into this psyche of nobody's going to beat us here today, and if they are going to beat us, well, they're going to need to play well. Well, that was a League Cup, a huge disappointment halfway through the season. And as David rightly points out, it probably took us a few weeks to shake that off. In fact, it was probably until the end of February, results were still hit and miss. Celtic had been front runners most of the season, but they never quite broke clear of the pack. Aberdeen, because of those uh, all those games in the first half of the season, had quite a few games in hand. They were still on the fringes of things, but... Admittedly, they were still on the fringes of the relegation battle as well, and two teams down in a ten-team top flight. So we'd moved into March. Alex McLeish had been moved into centre midfield that season. Ferguson, I think, had realised that his team were too often bullied in the centre of the park and didn't allow Gordon Strachan the time and space on the ball he really needed to flourish. So McLeish brought in, moved into centre midfield, Strachan moves wide. In some respects, Michael, it's a blueprint having that enforcer in there for what came later with Simpson and Cooper, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you look at that that team that finished that season and I suppose all the Aberdeen teams under Fergie after that, it was just a great balance, wasn't it? I mean, it was a kind of classic back four built on that kind of rock of the two centre-halves and the, the an international goalkeeper. And then... Obviously, Simpson and Cooper, who came later, were as, as tough as each other, really. Um, and then the two brilliant kind of wide players, and and two centre, and two uh, forwards. Now, that team there is almost it's it's a prototype of what came later. You know, Strachan and Scanlon wide, and uh, whether it was McLeish or Andy Watson or or Drew Javi centre, McGee and Archibald up front. Um, I just look at that and think balance, you know, and it was just. It was just a, a team that clicked for that uh, for that run-in. We'll maybe come to it, but it's also worth pointing out that we we were really the beneficiaries of a massive Celtic wobble. Celtic pretty much folded in that title run-in, especially between January and March. I think they won one game out of seven in the league. Although at one point we were ten points behind with three games in hand, it was two points for a win in those days. And people just thought, well, Celtic are not going to get caught. You know, the old firm don't get caught from that sort of position. 
I think Fergie looked at it, and I, he, I know we'll come to it because it's a definitive point in that season. But the two Celtic games at Parkhead in April, he didn't he didn't rule those out. He he thought that's a potential four points if we win the game in hand, the games in hand, we claw them back in. So everything started to just coalesce around Aberdeen. The team clicked, and the fixtures fell nicely for us. Celtic wobbled, and suddenly it began to narrow. Now. I don't like to bring this up, Willie, because as I said at the outset, it's a slightly bittersweet season for you in some respects. Obviously, you walk away with a league title medal, but uh, around about March, you lose your place in the team. He decides to drop Alex McLeish, well, do Ruby initially, but Alex McLeish gets pulled back into centre-half. You make a couple of appearances the following season, um, one of them in uh, Vienna, but uh, you move on to Celtic midway through that. Looking back at some of the old papers, you had an option to move to Partick Thistle around that time. Uh, do you remember anything about that? I do, actually. Yeah, I didn't want to go to Partick Thistle, to be quite honest. <laughs> Just as simple as that? <laughs> as simple as that. <laughs> at that. At that time, you're right, I, I played a number of games that season and I felt that there was still a possibility that I could get back into the side, maybe naively, because Big Alec was playing centre midfield and doing a fantastic job. But there was always going to be one place for Big Alec and he was going to move back in there. And the, I think regardless of how I was going to be playing, he was going to make that through the centre-backs, which is, which is proven to be the right decision, to be honest. But uh, I didn't want to go to Parker Pistol. And I had the chance to go to Barnsley as well, mm-hmm. when Al- Alan Clark was the manager. And I, I, I turned that down as well for some bizarre reason. I don't know why I did that. Because I always thought if I get a chance to go to England at uh, half-decent level, I would do it because it becomes a bit of a merry-go-round in there and you can make a wee bit of money. And I didn't, I didn't go either. I, I think pretty naive and stupid of me at the time. I just thought I could get back in the side. Barnsley then signed Neil Cooper after that because you turned him yeah. down? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And it, it was unfortunate. That's football, isn't it? You know, you move, you're, you're, you're not irreplaceable unless you're Willie. <laughs> you're not, you're not irreplaceable. <laughs> uh, but obviously the relationship with the manager must have still been reasonable for you to accept the call to come back a few years later. There, there was a lot of times in the afternoons I used to go in and take the young players back. Um, I just off my own back. I just I just thought that what am I doing? What else am I going to be doing? So I'd go back in and the likes of me Miller and Paul Wright and these boys, David Robertson. I would take them back out in the afternoons and just do stuff for them. Not thinking about getting into football management, to be honest, it was just something that I just like doing. Um, we are now, I think, it's more planned that people plan their route ahead in terms of football management and coaching. And I just took the guys back in the afternoons and walked away with them and walked away with them. And that was one of the things that the manager says when he took me back in. So I always remember you doing that. So there wasn't, there wasn't any malice or any fallout with the manager. Or I it just had the chance to go to Harps just before I signed for Celtic. Wallace Mercer phoned me to say, I think it was Bobby Monker was the manager. Bobby Monker came up to Stonehaven to speak to me. And the money they were offering was, was abysmal, to be honest. And Wallace Mercer phoned me in the morning. And he says, I really want you to come and sign the Harps. And then the manager phoned me and he says, John Clark's just been on the phone. Celtic want to sign you. And I went, whoa. But left in good terms. After the sort of staggered start to January 19, February 1980, a lot of games postponed with the weather finally strung some league wins together and as Michael says it coincided with quite a wobble from Celtic they went out of the European Cup quarter-final after beating Real Madrid 2-0 at home lost 3-0 in Spain and yeah those two games 
at Parkhead in April. The first of which, really, it was almost, I guess you could argue, David, a bit of a shot to nothing. Because the pressure wouldn't really have been on at that point. There would have been no preconceptions of Aberdeen going there and sustaining any sort of challenge. It was just another game on Celtic's route to the title. Well, a fr- friend of mine, Finlay, uh, he actually, I, I wasn't at the game. Um, I was watching Keith win the Highland League uh, that day. Uh, but um, my friend went to the game. He's got relations in that end of Glasgow and they, he went along with them and they Celtic fans. He said they had bottles of champagne with them, ready to sell, you know, beat us, they won the league. And that was as simple as that. And it was a real turning point because not only did we win 2 1, uh, Bobby Clark saved a penalty, as I remember it. And I think there was a sort of. That's when the belief, I think, started that we could do this because we were going there. And as you said earlier on, Ferguson obviously looked at the fixture list and said, we can do it again. And on Wednesday night, about what, 10 days, two weeks later, um, we actually were doing it, did it again. But I think you're absolutely right. Um, Nobody was giving us a chance. I don't think, to be fair, as fans, we even thought we would. Because going to Parkhead twice and winning, I mean, that's that's a tall order. Um, and, you know, we, we assumed that if Celtic didn't win it that day, they would or sew it up that day. It would be just a matter of time. But as Michael said earlier on, that incredible wobble, um, you know, trounced at Dense Park 5-1. Um, and we were winning at Kilmarnock. And... You, you, you can't legislate for that, and it was just a sort of disbelief about it. And but there was still that that feeling that that will still blow it. You know, we're 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 it's Aberdeen. We we know what we do. We we'll trip up against Hibs at home or something. A Celtic fan said to me, "You didn't win the league. We lost it." And that's a very churlish thing to say, uh, but I can see the point that they're stutter and stumble. Uh, their lack of the way the belief just seemed to leak out of them. Um, was astonishing. I'd never seen that before. Celtic had been the, up till that point been the dominant um, side in, in, in my time as a supporter. You spoke, Michael, about one of the uh, impacts of the change of having Alex McLeish in centre midfield that season. And it's, it's probably long forgotten that he actually made his Scotland debut that season playing in centre midfield as well. But the other yeah, aspect yeah. was Gordon Strachan moving out to uh, more of a, a wide position a right uh, wing position and, and he really found his feet that season as an Aberdeen player in fact he was he won the Scottish Football Writers Player of the Year that season Yeah he did I mean he, Willie will tell us but I mean he was never a a problem for Fergie in terms of discipline or attitude in those early days but I know he found it tough to settle at Aberdeen before Ferguson came in he, you know he, did, he didn't feel he was uh, justifying the kind of the the decision to sign him and the expectation there was around him. There's a case for saying that that uh, Strachan was was the the most talented, arguably the most exciting player that that we had in that era. You know, he he was the one that frightened other teams, other defences, other fans. I mean, you know, I'm not being flippant about it, but the fact that uh, Celtic supporters in two separate games came on the pitch to to try and get to him. You know that showed that Strachan above all got under the skin of other fans, and they were they were they were worried and they feared him. You know, you know his kind of growing confidence was was evident even in a little thing like that in the second game at uh, at Parkhead, both Archibald who scored early and Strachan who scored the third goal in the three one win, they both kind of gestured at the jungle. You know, which was a kind of unthinkable act of defiance. You know, um, it was a kind of clenched fist thing. It wasn't. It wasn't abusive or insulting, but but it takes a bit of attitude to do that. You know, and that and that showed 
even that little thing showed how Strachan had had grown and emerged and um, you know, as you say, he was the player of the year that uh, that season. Fergie, it's, it's, it's worth remembering that, but going into that April, Celtic hadn't lost to anybody at home apart from Aberdeen in the League Cup. Even Real Madrid hadn't won at Parkhead that season. So Fergie still thought we could do this, we could win there twice. To go to Parkhead twice in 19 days and win them both. And uh, he believed it, and I think certainly by the time they'd won the first one, the players felt that, yeah, this this is possible. Um, and he, Fergie said on the eve of the game, this is, a, this is a league decider, if we lose this, it's Celtic's title. You know, that was his public message, whether he was giving the same message to the players or whether that was... Um, whether they had an entirely different message to them, I'm not sure. But um, but no question, the the two games that defined that season, defined that league title, you know, as much as anything, that put Aberdeen onto a different uh, level in terms of being able to go to Glasgow and deliver. But before we talk about the second game with uh, Celtic at Parkhead, th- there were a couple of hiccups before we reached that point, having won at Parkhead and reignited the title race. Firstly, Willie, out of the Scottish Cup, our only defeated Parkhead that season, and it came to Rangers. Did I play in that game? No, I don't think you did. Would you, would you have been with the reserves that day? That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on. We'll move That's on. Of that game. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, actually, remembering that game and speaking about uh, you know washing up the season, and the season, that was one of Aberdeen's best performances of the season. We really were robbed that day. Rangers put nothing into the game and. It was a sort of very sort of sclaffed edge of the box goals from Derek Johnson with about 15 minutes left or something. But Aberdeen played really well that day and we felt robbed. But we we still had our eyes on another prize. But I, th- I thought, I thought we're, we actually were a far better team that day. Well, here's something you will be able to speak about, Willie, because uh, Drew Jarvie that season, I mean, it was uh, at the start of the season, his appearances were pretty sporadic. He was approaching... By the standards of that year with a veteran status Obviously up top it, was, it tended to be Archibald and Harper That started that season But Drew made a, a significant contribution Towards the latter end of that season And it was uh, just that Good balance of having experienced professionals Like Jarvie, like Bobby Clark Like Willie Miller Like yourself who by that point It was uh, four or five years in your professional career With some of the younger players coming through That was vital to the makeup of that side yeah, Drew, Drew was an inspiration, to be honest, you know. And Drew knew what was expected of him. And he, he kept his fitness level different. You know, it's just, it's, even when you meet the guy now, you know, he's such a humble guy. What a player he was. And what a hardy bit of tin he was as well. You know? <laughs> I mean, he, Drew played up front with Drew Busby for a long time at Airbrook. And uh, uh, thankfully, I never played against the two of them then because they, Drew Jarvie was a hardy, hardy bit of player. There's no doubt about that. And he was a wise old head as well, you know, and he could get about the park, and, he, and if there was people needing a hand, he would give them a hand. Just a fantastic professional. I can't say enough about him. You know, if you spoke to me, Joe, and say who was some of the best players you've played with, Jarvie would come in there. Well, let's veer from uh, a fantastic professional to someone who was fantastically talented, but maybe not the best professional, Michael. Uh, George Best made his one and only appearance at Pataudry as we were chasing down Celtic. It looked like a calamitous drop point as we drew 1-1 with him at home. But best contribution that night was really to annoy Willie Miller with some passbacks from his own half. Um, I'm sure I remember Willie saying um, 
that he uh, he had words with Best afterwards, and uh, it was almost like there was an element of kind of Willie was a bit hurt. I think that um, this great player, this legendary figure, came came to uh, share a pitch with a e- even greater Willie Miller, and um, Ollie. You know, he was uh, he was part of a Hibs team that. Um, it wasn't exactly coming to try and uh, thrill everybody, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I hadn't realised that was best only um, appearance at Pretoria, but yeah, I guess I guess it would have been uh, only I competitive appearance. Aberdeen beat Manchester United five two, friendly seventy two seventy three for Mark uh, for Mark Buckham. and best right. best was playing that night. Yeah, but competitively, yeah, yeah, yeah sure, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I so Willie wasn't taking any of his nonsense basically, and. Uh, wasn't impressed by his um, <laughs> wasn't impressed by his contribution that day. There were some words in the tunnel. <laughs> Just words. They got broken up. <laughs> <laughs> so to that to that second match at Parkhead, then to go once there in a month and win was considered unlikely, as Michael says. They hadn't lost to anybody else other than Aberdeen at home that season. Surely it wasn't going to happen twice. Um, it was a Wednesday night, a, a lovely early summer evening. It did happen again. Lightning did strike again. David, a 3-1 win this time. We were down there, and I mean, there was a massive crowd. There was 60-odd thousand there. And we were tightly packed into that wee corner we still get. Um, but a lot of people, Aberdeen fans, dotted elsewhere on the ground. There was no real cohesion between them at the time. Um, but, so it was quite intimidating. But the team so cool. I mean, went ahead and then um, McLeish gave away a penalty. And Strachan missed a penalty. We thought, no, it's not going to happen. And then did we score just before half just before half time? And Strachan came out and scored that third one. And as he's already alluded to, he did that war dance. That was it. That we thought. We, we really can't do this now because these guys have gone down here twice in two weeks, whatever it was, and we've tamed them, we've taken a big crowd on, we've silenced it, we've won, we've missed a penalty en route. The, the league is really ours for taking. We, we, we had a beer after the, the game and Celtic fans are saying, this, it's your league now, we've blown it. They had lost confidence totally by that time. It was a, a huge turning point. I think not only... For that season but for what was to come after because it was the belief that it instilled in the players Ferguson had been proven right he gained the respect of the players uh, any lingering doubts the fans had totally extinguished because of those two games especially the second one I mean, it was we, we, we controlled that after we scored that third goal we, we were toying with them almost you know, it was like watching Scotland at Wembley in 67 there was an arrogance and a swagger about that team and that performance that saw us in good stead for years to come. David talks, uh, Michael, about taming the crowd there. And I think players did it in different ways, didn't they? You had Doug Rugby warming up in front of a jungle. You know, you had, obviously, as you pointed out, Gordon Strachan being the, the focus of ire from from a couple of the Celtic supporters. Stuart Kennedy, no, notably, because a, a regular trick at uh, Parkhead back in those days used to be delaying the kickoff when it need not necessarily have been delayed for reasons of congestion, but to try and just give the edge to the home side again. But Stuart Kennedy was one step ahead, wasn't he? Yeah, the, the trick was that Aberdeen would be would be in the dressing room um, almost ready to go and the Celtic chairman of the time would come in and say, 
Oh, sorry lads, we just had word that the police are putting the kick-off back. There's so many fans trying to get in. Now, you know, it was a neat enough little psychological trick. It was supposed to spook Aberdeen and spook our players and thinking, oh God, how many fans are going to be here today? They're all turning up. Um, but yeah, you can only play that so often because um, eventually a, a, a visiting team gets wise to it. And, um, you know, Kennedy, uh, Kennedy was, um, I remember Stuart telling me that Eventually, it got to the point where Aberdeen just wouldn't even be ready to go out. You know, they would—they would almost. It's almost like they would do their warm-up and then put clothes back on, put the tracksuits <laughs> back on, so that when the chairman, the Celtic chairman, came in, he would look around and go, "Oh, oh, what's this?" You know, because they knew it was all a trick. Um, but so it was—it was mind games from Celtic. It was mind games from Aberdeen back. But you know, you look at the players in that side and. Bobby Clark had been around forever, very experienced. Stuart Kennedy wasn't going to get mucked around. Doug Rugby famously doing his warm-ups in front of the jungle. Andy Watson was was hardy. Willie Miller wasn't going to get fussed. Strachan had attitude. Archibald had attitude. McGee was a strong character. You know, right through the side, you had guys who weren't going to buckle and fold easily when that kind of pressure was applied to them. Sure enough, you saw it with the you saw it with the two results and. Uh, you know, Aberdeen had who had been eleven points behind at one point in January. They just chased down and chased down and chased down Celtic. And after that win, they were they went top for the first time uh, on goal difference with a game in hand, four games left. So I mean, you, you don't get a more pivotal result in a league championship than that. How had the mood changed inside the club within the space of that month, Willie? Can I say that, you know, leading up where, where I say that would mean we're a way, way behind and just thinking about, you know, let's get through the season because that was a kind of Malay's feeling that was about the place. Mm-hmm. And then Celtic started dropping points. And then, honestly, the, the mood changed in the camp. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Training got more intense. You know, if you told something so many times that actually at some point you're going to believe it. And there you had that back to that, the demeanour or was it just off the cuff? But it's to catch them. We can catch them. We can still catch them, you know. That's as another two points closer. We can still catch them. They're struggling. That was the whole dialogue that was going on. And, and people's heads were, were was getting ingrained into them. That they could go, they would already done it, went to Celtic Park and won. You know, so to go down and win there twice, fantastic achievement for everybody that was watching. But there was an expectation in the, in, through the players that they could go and do that. And it was all about the build-up to these games, about... We've been down here to win. We're not just coming second fiddle. So there was a whole drumming in there. It was like somebody's going out with a big drum and just beating that drum and beating that drum. You know, at some point you're going to say, I like that drum. I'm going to, I'm going to listen to that drum getting played, you know. So it was a huge, men- a huge mentality swing, visibly a mentality swing, uh, once you started pulling some back, back some of the points. It was a good place to be. The club was a good place to be at that time. Then, of course, the uh, the the pressure kind of shifts back onto the Dons because they they are leading the pack, and uh, St Mirren are up at Petardon. St Mirren at that point, with four games left, David, they still had aspirations for the title themselves. Now, there had been five thousand fans at the St Mirren game we spoke about earlier, the December one, where John Hewitt incidentally made his debut immediately after the League Cup final. It was a full house for their visit um, the Saturday following the second win at Parkhead. Yeah, I looked at that earlier today because that was just before they put the roof over the south stand and what they'd done in advance of that is they'd cut the top of the terrace off so the attendance was limited. And I looked, checked up today, it's, it's listed as about 14,000, I think. 
there was this nervousness that we were playing St Mirren. St Mirren had given us a hard time that season. They were in with a chance, they were a good footballing team, it was a beautiful day, but we just did it. It was just, again, that confidence that ran through that team. Scanlon and Rugby scored, I think. And it was sort of predestined almost. They settled very quickly. St Mirren tried to, to get out, but we, we just we just closed them. We, 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 we never gave them a sniff, really. And as you say, they're still no chance of the title. And I think that day we thought, well, normally, having beaten Celtic at Parkhead on Wednesday, we'd come here and draw with St Mirren. I saw that in 71. Um, or we would get beaten at home. And that's a sort of still that nervous expectation that you have as an Aberdeen fan in those days. If we go and get a result against Dundee United and Hibs next Saturday, Celtic can't catch us. And that was an unbelievable place to be as an Aberdeen fan at that stage of the season. We've not seen that since 78 um, when we, we ran the double close. But we really felt after that St Mirren game, that's the hurdle we might have fallen at. That's where we would have stuttered and stumbled, typically as, as, as Aberdeen did. But no, we did it. We did it comfortably. We played the game out as, as we wanted to. We won it on our terms. Again, it was it was just, it was destined. The two title wins that came after this, Michael, were quite, I mean, they were quite mechanical. Mechanical is maybe not the right word to use, but you know what I mean? It was <laughs> right from day one, the Dons were the best team in the league and they showed it throughout the course of the season. This one, those games kept coming thick and fast to April and the opportunity to have that momentum swing that did happen was there because you have Parkhead on a Wednesday you've got St Mirren on the Saturday and on the Tuesday night we're down at Canadice now Dundee United were going to do us no favours that evening were they? No, no of course they weren't and uh, you know the the League Cup final which hadn't been that uh, the replay hadn't been that far ahead of that game so you know we, we knew how capable Dundee United were uh, I mean that point that you make about the, the subsequent league titles you know, we were all looking at Aberdeen differently by then, you know, I mean, you know, by that point they had won the European Cup Winners' Cup and they had won, you know, umpteen Scottish Cups and 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 beaten the old firm umpteen times at home and away. They were a different force by then. Everybody saw Aberdeen differently. What was special about 79-80 was it was a team that hadn't, you know, had had yet to make that uh, that that evolution into into a trophy winning side. Aberdeen hadn't won the league since '55. No team other than the Old Firm had won it since '65. You know, so you're talking about 15 years um, of Old Firm domination. Now, obviously, we're we're beyond that now in terms of uh, the longevity of the Old Firm's uh, domination. But but 15 years is a, is a long time. And I think, you know, we'll come to it, but when they did actually cross the cross the finishing line, there was enormous kind of uh, goodwill from other supporters towards it because it was smashing the old firm domination at long last. And, um, you know, you know, Willie had the privilege of being inside the camp. I mean, the excitement and the growing excitement... Uh, it must have been fantastic. It was certainly fantastic as a supporter, because after the Celtic game, you know, th- there was only four games left, as as we know now. The third, the the final one was academic, but so you, it was St Mirren, Dundee United, and then Hibs on the uh, Hibs on the Saturday Easter Road. So we were on the home straight, and barring barring a Devon Loch, 
which we couldn't rule out because we know until you get there, you can't take it for granted that Aberdeen would get across the finishing line. But we know now that they did it in style. But yeah, to go back to your original point, the, the, the Dundee United one was was a nervy one. Uh, it was it was a point dropped, but no no major harm done. Aberdeen still had the initiative because they had the goal difference. Yeah, Celtic won the following night to move one point clear back at the top of the table, but they only had one game left at Paisley on the Saturday. Aberdeen would be Easter Road that day, but Aberdeen had the additional game, which um, in a sort of scheduling which would not be allowed to happen now, was going to happen after the um, final round of games on the Saturday. The Park Thistle game had been scheduled for the following Tuesday. Uh, Willie, before we move on to Easter Road and all of that, I just want to discuss the influence of someone that is very often forgotten when it comes to the uh, story of Alex Ferguson's time at Pajordia. It's Pat Stanton. Pat was the assistant manager at Fergie in those first two seasons. I, I'm very friendly with Pat. I, I live in Edinburgh now and, and I see Pat now and again. And Pat was one of these cool, calm, collective players. That's, that's how he played. But so efficient. And when he became the assistant manager, it was the exact same. Cool, calm. If the manager was having a rant at somebody, Pat would go and sit down next to him and say, this is what he really means by that. And he was just a, just got a cool head that just kept, he was really the gel that kept everything together. Because there was a few times when it was getting, uh, um, people were getting excitable and Fergie was infusing, it was like throwing oil, petrol onto a fire, it was just getting more excitable. Pat would be the guy that would just say, come on and let's calm down, we've got a job to do, let's make sure that we do the job properly, uh, you do your job individually, collectively we do a job. And we'll win this, you know. Um, and there's probably the last words that were said when you go out onto the park at half time were, were coming from Pat, because the manager already had his rant. I've got to say about Sir Alec though, that there, there is a, I think anybody can go and shout to people and just shout and hurl anything they want. The first thing that's in their head, that could happen. But then you've got to be able to then, as a good manager, to say, right, this is what, this is what we're going to do now. This is what we're going to do. The rant's over. This is how we're now going to approach in the next part of this game. And Pat was a big part of that. You know, super, I mean, the, the players loved him. The players absolutely loved him. He was funny, such experience, and he was such a great player. Such a great player. And the players respected that. Uh, and it was, a, it was a great appointment. I think all Fergie's assistant managers have been great appointments, to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> but, it was, um, but it was a fantastic appointment at the time because he needed, he knew he needed someone in. Was David Proven Noy's assistant at um, St Mern? Was Big Davy Noy's assistant at St Mern? Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's right, Polly. And you know, and, and it's you're wondering why did he no take take Big Davy up with him? Right away, he got Pat in, and Pat was. Uh, they were like talking cheese. It was good cop, bad cop. Well, once you go to the archery and Fergie, it was bad cop. Bad <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it was quite a contrast to what came next. Obviously, if I you're talking about someone yeah. cool, calm and collected, because I, I don't believe from everything I've heard <laughs> that uh, Archie was quite like that. But uh, anyway, no, I, I just thought definitely worth uh, mentioning Pat Stanton, because I, I think yeah. he tends to get airbrushed out of uh, this particular history a little bit. So, um, But yeah, that, that day at Easter Road, um, David, a huge exodus of Don supporters. Um, Hibs already relegated, home ends pretty much empty. And it turned into a bit of a jamboree in terms of our game. But I'm sure there were a lot of transistor radios uh, in use in the away end. 
even even taking into account Gothenburg, best day of my dawn's support and life. Uh, it really meant that we'd arrived. Huge crowd, as you say. Just arriving in Edinburgh off the train, uh, Aberdeen fans are everywhere. We filled that end. If you look at the footage with all the goals raining in the second half, there's guys leaping about in the, the Hibs end. The main stand full of Aberdeen fans. Um, but we started off, it was a bit jittery. It was about the 25th minute, I think, before we scored. And then we scored two in a minute. And that was it. Um, Hibs weren't coming back from that. They were a potential banana skin. They'd, we'd drawn 1-1 when recently Pitodri spoke about that. Uh, it is a sort of game that, you know, the, the, the slight trepidation you have as an Aberdeen fan. Oh, this is a one we'll, we'll, we'll trip up on. Um, but once there's two goals, there was only one result. Remember the transistor radios? I, I, I really don't remember Bobby Clark being kept informed or anything, but, um, you know, a bit of beer had been taken on board that day. And uh, late, Celtic were awarded a penalty very, very late on, and the referee um, gave a free kick outside the box. It came to nothing, so they drew 0-0. Um, but the, the atmosphere was incredible. The occasion was incredible. And the team just played as they, they could play. They, they took Hibs apart. Uh, Hibs' heads were real, right down or relegated. They were just looking forward to summer holidays. But take nothing away from, from Aberdeen that day. They, they, they turned the screw, scored at will, and it really was a, as I say, the best, best day of my life. Uh, everybody in a pitch at the end, Fergie hugging Bobby Clark. Absolutely the best day of my dawn support in life. The aftermath as well, going up Easter Road, all these cars, people reaching out of cars, shaking your hand and hugging you, and special train on the way home, and, oh, it's, and drinking afterwards. I think I stayed in Joe Harper's bar for about three days, because it was a Monday holiday on the Monday. You know, it's, it's still lump in the throat stuff just thinking about it. Brilliant, brilliant. And if you're going to do it, Michael, do it in style. And 5-0 on the day you clinch the title is definitely doing it in style. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm, I'm really pleased that you mentioned Pat Stanton there, Richard, because when I did the book, Pat spoke to me about, um, you know, we've all done the kind of walk or the drive from... Uh, the centre of Edinburgh down Easter Road. You know, if you if you take if you come off the train at Waverley and you 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 go down London Road and um, Royal Terrace Gardens, I think it is. Willie lives in Edinburgh. He'll tell me tell me if I'm right. You know, so you've got that kind of bank of trees. You know, and and uh, Pat told me about going down there on the team bus on the way to the game, and he said we couldn't believe the number of fans. He said the quote he gave me was he said it was like an army and uh, an army of red shirts camped in the trees. You know. And they kind of turned to the players and said, we can't let these guys down, we can't let these supporters down, you know, can't disappoint these people. I, I think maybe by that point we kind of, they, they kind of knew that they weren't going to, you know, I mean, I think um, with Hibs and Thistle to, to to deal with and the advantage that we had, it was um, it, it, it was going to happen, you know, and just... Just an, an iconic day in terms of Scottish football, an iconic day for the club, the sunshine, as Dave said, the, the, the sun, you know, the great pictures of the Aberdeen support just losing its heads, and also Fergie himself, the iconic kind of pictures of him doing that kind of skipping run at full time. I think it was the reporter from the Evening Express had signalled nil-nil to him, you know, he'd put his fingers up, holding up uh, to signify nil-nil, meaning the Celtic game had had finished and they dropped points, so Aberdeen were champions. If you if you watch Fergie closely, he, he he's, he's darting around. He doesn't really know where to run to. You know, his eyes kind of set on Clark, and he just runs to Clark and kind of leaps up in his arms. 
Archie McPherson comes out with a line about, you know, can you blame the man for going out of his mind temporarily, you know? And he wasn't the only one, let's be honest. And, uh, yeah, just, just, uh, just a, a magnificent moment and a, you know, a, a, a great moment for the club. Well, yeah, I don't know if you were in the travelling party that day, but you were definitely in Mr. G's later that night. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed yourselves. <laughs> 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 no, no, not to detract away. I wasn't in the travelling party that day. There was a shortage of players to play a reserve game. And I, myself, I'm, I'm pretty sure Duncan Davis and none of the two has got to go down. But you're right, I was in Mr. G's later on. It, it was a bit strange feeling, to be fair. But once we got few drinks in and then we were out in the park at the on Sunday then it wasn't a problem at all. See Easter Road wasn't in good condition that day. Hibs had been relegated and it was almost like the, the groundsman had been had taken a few weeks off and the sun was shining and you're, you're going on to a hard baked park that's bobbling all over the place. So the performance of the team was absolutely magnificent. Yeah. yeah absolutely magnificent. You were, however, definitely in the party that went down to Park Thistle, which were tasked with avoiding getting beat by ten goals I think that night. The league title was presented. That must have been a good bus journey back up the road. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> so good that you can remember nothing of it? <laughs> can remember the start of it. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure that, um, there, would be, there was some... Uh, I, I think you were allowed alcohol in the buses at that point. Um, but to be fair, it, it wasn't. The, the celebrations were the Saturday. The guys knew fine well that they would have won the league, you know. Um, I think Fergie was copying Ali running onto the park after the League Cup final in 76. It was that runabout where I don't know where they're going. But they, they knew they'd won it. And, you know, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a mass celebrations coming back in the bus. You know, you get a wee flurry of a song. By the time you do it, Glasgow, everybody was shattered and they just wanted you to sleep. That Thistle game, Richard, um, I think... Uh... Arithmetically, Aberdeen would would have blown the league if they'd lost by ten goals to Patrick Thistle. And um, Bertie Ald was the Thistle manager who said on the eve of the game, "Well, well you know, let, let's see what happens." Kind of thing. You know? <laughs> I said if Garner plays, we'll be <laughs> It was a bit anticlimactic, to be honest. Uh, you know, the celebrations took place on the Saturday. Uh, we, we we went down. Uh, if we we did, we were coming round the Mount Hooley roundabout. As we came into Aberdeen And the team bus was just in front of us So we, we went out to Pitodri And uh, we, we met them, everybody coming off the bus Which was which was great There was one player who was rather worse for wear And uh, was throwing up the contents of his stomach Into the car but I won't mention who that was But I, I, that was what I mentioned earlier on About Joe Harper He was kind of last off the bus And he goes, oh god, will these fans remember who I am And he got as big a reception as, as anyone did uh, yeah. Because of you know who he was He was Joe Harper but that was great to do. Fergie had the cup and he was wearing some ridiculous hat. It was just great having seen what they'd been through that season for three or four of us who just chanced up on the bus, followed it down and, and met them all coming off the bus and, and uh, were able to pass on congratulations and our delight personally. And I think there was a reference afterwards as well from the manager about that slogan that was written on the wall. Oh, I'm pretty sure that there was something said afterwards as well. So I told you, I told you that was never going to happen again, and it didn't. It absolutely didn't. It absolutely didn't. Um, and that was the story of a remarkable uh, league victory in 1780, told by some of the people who were there, some of the people who were inside the dressing room. And uh, it's been a joy for me. I hope you've enjoyed it. So thank you very much to Willie Garner, 
Thank you, Richard. To David Innes. And all the best, Richard. Thank you. And you should definitely look out David's book on the Washington Whips, should you get a chance. And frankly, this period right now, you've got a chance to catch up on some reading. And if you haven't already read Fergie Rises by Michael Grant, then you can consider yourself drummed out the Aberdeen support. Michael, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Richard. Really enjoyed it. Right, we'll be back next week. Over the next few days, you can expect a cornucopia of um, references and images referring to this great side of 7980 and this memorable title win. Until next time, come on you Reds. <laughs>